1: The FT. Welcome to this edition of World Weekly with me, Gideon Rachman. The past week in Britain has been a reminder of the bitterness of the politics of the 1980s, as a vehement debate has broken out about the legacy of Margaret Thatcher, who died last week. For Conservatives, she remains a hero who rescued the British economy and helped to win the Cold War. But for the left, she was a villain who provoked social division and wrecked Britain's relations with the European Union. Today, we're going to at least attempt to establish a more nuanced verdict. And with me are the FT's chief political commentator, Philip Stevens. And on the line from the IMF meeting in Washington is Chris Giles, our economics editor. Chris, let's start with economics. It's now more than 20 years since Mrs Thatcher left office. So what's your view? Did she rescue the British economy?
0: Well, I think you put it quite well in the introduction. She sort of did both. So Britain's economy certainly improved from the 1980s onwards so that the relative decline that Britain had experienced over the previous 100 years essentially ended and Britain began to catch up in terms of income per head with France, Germany, and the US after 1980. But equally, a lot of that happened uh, at the expense of a great divisiveness in society, a great increase in inequality, and so that not everyone benefited in the same way that the economy did as a whole.
2: Philip, uh, what's, what's your verdict? You lived through it, covered it. You know, one can't quarrel with the statistics, whatever one says about statistics, lies and damn lies. But I'd add a couple of caveats. I think the first is that Margaret Thatcher was very fortunate in her timing, as it were. I mean, things couldn't have got worse after the 1970s, the chaos, my own view, it's very difficult with counterfactuals, is, is that any government and in, indeed the Labour government of Jim Callaghan was beginning to get a grip on the British economy. So she was fortunate in that respect. But the big thing is, which has been left out of all the sort of hagiography we've seen in the last uh, week, is North Sea Oil. We got this enormous bounty of North Sea Oil and gas, which came on stream. Again, brilliant timing for Mrs Thatcher in the late 1970s. Produced enormous revenues. Now, if you look at Norway suffer, uh, suffered, uh, Norway uh, got the same benefits. It put its money away. It has this enormous sovereign wealth fund now. We spent it, and a lot of those increases in living standards was basically just living off North Sea oil and gas.
1: Chris, what do you say
2: to that?
0: Well, I think the more important than North Sea oil was actually the supply-side reforms that ultimately the Thatcher government started, although they were in fact starting before 1979. And it's absolutely right to say that although we don't know the counterfactuals, it's absolutely clear that everyone knew things had to change by the late 1970s. So the supply side reforms were essentially allowing managers to manage their own companies, not bailing out companies when they got into trouble, so they made force them either to go under or to uh, fuck their ideas up. And really taking a real look at the labour market, which in Britain had been working extremely badly, uh, to the point where now it's working really rather well. Those sorts of reforms ultimately, I think, help the Thatcher period have a lasting legacy for the next 30 years or so, uh, rather than just the North Sea helping out, which it certainly did.
1: Chris, what about the uh, the critique that the ultimate criticism of the Thatcher era came with the bust of 2008, and that as she was associated above all with deregulation, particularly in the financial sector, which generated a lot of wealth for a while, but was also deeply unsafe?
0: Well, we don't know where we are yet. We know that Britain has been declining relative to other countries recently. But I think what you can say with some certainty is that Mrs. Thatcher's view of markets were that they were much, much better than any sort of state control. And she almost certainly went too far in that. Her, her view on exchange rates, for example, was you can't buck the markets. She said to Nigel Lawson in 1989 in opposition to joining the European exchange rate mechanism. That view clearly is true only if markets themselves are operating well. And we now know the perils of letting them operate without enough Regulation, particularly in the financial sphere, so I think that there is certainly a, an amount of uh, blame that can be attached to the sorts of ideas Mr. Thatcher had. Although it really wasn't the Big Bang in the city in 1986 that led directly to the problems we've seen uh, later on, that that sort of attitude developed over the ensuing 15-20 years.
2: Philip. But I think this ideological devotion to markets has left us with some other problems beyond the crash. If you look at the condition of British industry and the British services, the tradable services sector, outside the financial services, it's dismal. We've had a big devaluation in the past few years, and our exports are completely flat. Now, you know, it's all very well to say governments shouldn't interfere in markets, but if I were choosing between, say, German industry and british industry i know where my choice would be and the germans don't interfere but they're active and we've got to get back i think in britain and and if you like disavow this legacy where the treasury view is that any interference in markets um, is a bad thing so i think um, there's a bit of the legacy that actually if it does endure we're going to be in trouble and this government i think is just very tentatively beginning to shake it off with the beginnings of its own industrial strategy.
1: But Philip, you you were a consistent critic of Thatcher on Europe and, and felt very much that she took the wrong line. And now her supporters are saying this week, well, clearly she was right to oppose the single European currency and that
2: her views of Europe are being vindicated. What would your response be to that? I think the essence of the criticism on Thatcher on Europe was that Towards the end and not at the beginning, you have to remember she started out as a passionate pro-European. I think that the criticism at the end was she began and she basically built this idea in the Conservative Party, which persists, that Britain can somehow detach itself from its own continent. Now, that's not to say, as we've seen with a single currency, that everything other europeans have done have been right but the idea that britain can if you like cast itself off from the continent of which it's part um seemed to me then to be ridiculous and actually in a way even more ridiculous now we've seen if you like in statements from the u.s administration how potentially damaging that is for our interests throughout the world not just in europe chris you're at the imf
1: meetings now i mean Let's take a couple of steps back and look at Thatcher as a kind of global figure in in the battle of ideas. How important do you think she was beyond Britain's shores, along with Ronald Reagan perhaps, in pushing forward an era of free market ideas and deregulation?
0: Well, I think uh, very important in the sense that if you look at what the IMF is pushing right now, it's pushing a combination of medium-term fiscal consolidation monetary policy run pretty much along the lines similar to what mrs thatcher and ronald reagan introduced and deep structural reforms and where they say the answer to the deep conundrum of what you do when you've got high public debt and very little way of getting out of the mess we're in is they're saying to particularly european countries you've got to go down the supply side route that doesn't just mean slavishly following markets but thinking about where which ways You can make your market and your society work better. And that really does have its roots in Reaganism and Thatcherism.
1: So, Philip, um, if we're looking again at at her as a historical figure, I mean, of course, given that this is the week of her death and then her funeral, there may be a tendency for everybody to talk up what Thatcher meant. But uh, you covered two towering figures in contemporary British politics, Thatcher and then Blair. My sense is that Thatcher probably will come out as the more significant figure
2: over the years. Do you share that view? Well, of course, her significance and Tony Blair's significance will depend on what happens in the future as well as what has actually happened in the past I think if one had to make the judgement now the answer would be yes but we're closer to Blair and Blair is still defined by what now looks a pretty disastrous decision to go to war with the US in Iraq so I think yes but I think that this legacy thing can be overdone no one's talked about Margaret Thatcher for the last 10 years save that David Cameron the now Tory leader, had been before her death, been trying to distance himself mm. from her. I suspect after this sort of emotional sort of splurge of the last few days, she'll be forgotten again quietly. But I think to do her justice, I think the determination, the sheer political will that she showed um, during the 1980s, in foreign and in domestic affairs, means that she will rank fairly high in the sort of pantheon of British prime ministers. And do you think that Blair was, in a sense, part of his significance was reconciling the left to
1: some of the labour market reforms
2: and other things that Thatcher had done? Yes, I mean, I think Blair taught the Labour Party, although it's a lesson that the present Labour leader Ed Miliband may be unlearning, that if it wants to win elections, it's got to have a prospectus that, if you like, reconciles its values, fairness, greater equality with the realities of economics and the market system. That was a big leap. Three general election victories for a centre-left party, the first time it had happened for the Labour Party. And I think... In a way, that significance, that will endure. But because of Iraq, I think Blair, for some time yet, will always be remembered for, if you like, standing shoulder to shoulder with George W. Bush.
1: Now, Chris, uh, since we're in the legacy business, I mean, coming back to something that you spoke of when we first started talking about the economics, you mentioned inequality and it seems to me that, again, if there's, we talked about the extent to which we're still living in the Thatcher era, but maybe one way we've moved away is that this growing emphasis on inequality is a real problem. Do you think that it had its roots in some way in reforms that Thatcher and Reagan initiated? And are we any closer to thinking our way through to uh, having some of the economic vitality that she was after, but also dealing with the, uh, the legacy of inequality?
0: There's no doubt that the legacy of inequality rests with the Thatcherite period, certainly in the UK. Inequality was at its minimum level in the UK in 1977, so it was rising before she came to power, but it essentially rose very, very rapidly in the early 80s with the very sharp rise in unemployment, which was seen as a necessary evil to get rid of inflation. And then that inequality never left us through the rest of Thatcher, Major, Blair, Gordon Brown, and now this current government. So that's been a permanent change, even though unemployment has gone up and down thereafter. And a lot of that stems from the fact that bits of the country, bits of the north, the old industrial areas, which is where industry essentially disappeared, uh, the economies in those areas completely imploded and never recovered. And we still, 35 years on, haven't solved that. So when we're looking at where welfare cuts are going to bite hardest, it's in all the places that were hit hardest in the 1980s too.
1: Now, those are specifically British reasons, but inequality is a big issue in the US as well, and, and arguably in, in most of Europe. Is that an indication that if, if one pursues the kind of free market agenda that a Thatcher pursues, that's what's going to happen?
0: No, I don't think so. I think the reason that inequality right at the moment is such a big issue is that incomes are falling. Inequality is never such an issue when incomes are rising. So throughout the Blair era, throughout the era in most other advanced economies where inequality also rose, even in Nordic countries in the last 10, 15 years, inequality has been rising. it hasn't been a huge issue when people at the bottom end of the spectrum are also getting richer. Right at the moment in the last five years, people at the bottom end of the spectrum be getting significantly poorer. And then the relative rewards going to the top and the bottom become much more polarizing because if the top even if they're getting poorer uh, are doing really really well throughout a crisis in the bottom are getting five to ten percent poorer than they were when they were expecting the exact opposite and that's very divisive in society and i think the inequality while average incomes are not rising inequality is going to be very very high up on our agenda
1: Um, Now, of course, some people would associate inequality also with globalisation. So let let me finish by just discussing Thatcher's role as a, if you like, a handmaiden of globalisation. Philip, I mean, it always seemed to me there was an inherent tension, some might say uncharitably a contradiction between her championing of globalisation and breaking down trade barriers, and her fierce attachment to Britain as a sovereign nation state. How do
2: you see that? First of all, I just challenge Chris a little bit on this inequality thing, because I think it's not just a cyclical problem. I think it is the problem of globalization. The fact is that most of the benefits of globalization have accrued to people at the top. And unless we can find a way for ordinary people to benefit from it, then I fear, and this comes on to your point, that we'll retreat back into a a more nationalistic approach. Now, there is always a tension between the devotion to liberal markets and the intellectual understanding that we will benefit if markets are open, and the wish of all politicians, but politicians like Margaret Thatcher in particular, to hold on to their national sovereignty. That's the perennial tension. I think it's particularly acute at the moment in this downturn when each government is under pressure from its electors to defend them against the sort of chill winds of globalization, but they don't want to sort of give up on the project altogether. I think um, Margaret Thatcher epitomized that, but it's a problem that faces every single one of today's politicians.
1: Now, Chris, you're meeting uh, with the people who are, I guess, managing the whole globalization project at the IMF. Um, Do you think that the process that perhaps began in the Thatcher era, era, not just with her, but with Reagan, and also maybe with Deng Xiaoping in in China in 1978, that that's still got a long way to roll? Or are we coming to perhaps the end of the era that was associated with Thatcherite economics and and globalisation and moving into something new?
0: Well, I don't think we're getting anywhere close to the end of globalisation as we know it. Trade is still growing very fast around the world. It's just not necessarily growing among the traditional rich countries. Poor countries are still growing very rapidly. The world economy isn't doing as badly as you might think if you live in an advanced economy. And that's because uh, the emerging world and the, and the poorest countries, well-run poorest countries of the world, are growing extremely fast. So I think globalisation has got a long way to run, even if we might not feel it living in a rich society.
1: Chris Giles in Washington, thank you very much. And thanks also to Philip Stevens with me here in the studio in London. That's it for the Thatcher Memorial edition of World Weekly. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.
0: This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to OSEAMalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface.